0: Hey guys, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we know that it can be tricky to talk to your kids about their deepest, darkest fears, but that's also one of the most rewarding parts of being a parent. Well, we're working on a book right now that'll include real tips from real parents on how to calm your kids down when they're freaked out. The book is called Weird Parenting Wins, and we need to hear some wins on managing fears with kids of all ages. So we're talking fear of the dark, fear of monsters, but also fear of things like death and violence and racism. We want to know all the ways that you've helped your kids through these things, especially if it was a strategy that you made up yourself. Here is how to submit your win. Go to LongestShortestTime.com and click participate. Then just fill out the Weird Parenting Wins form. It's super easy. That's LongestShortestTime.com and click participate. Thanks. A couple months ago, I was in Chicago at a conference. I was talking to this woman. She She's a mom. She's Black. And we were talking about race. And at one point, I admitted to her that as a white person, I find it tricky to figure out how to cover race on the podcast. I kind of paused awkwardly and said, I feel like I'm an ally. This woman, she, she smiled at me. And she was like, thank you for saying it that way with a question mark at the end. She said to me, you know, as a white person, it's not really up to you to decide if you're an ally. That's for Black people to determine based on your actions. So I like how you said that. In this conversation, it really helped me to, like, feel okay about my clumsiness when talking about race, even when it's scary.
1: And I do think that that's something for... Just all of us to remember is how powerful it is just ask questions and listen.
0: This is Eula Biss. She's a writer and professor. She's white. And she's made a career out of embracing her own clumsiness when talking about race. You might have read her beautiful and thought-provoking essay in the New York Times magazine a couple years ago. It's called White Debt. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and today we're continuing the conversation about race that we started a couple months back on the show with our episode, How to Not Accidentally Raise a Racist. We heard from a lot of you after that episode asking for more, more ideas on talking with kids about race, especially when we feel uncomfortable talking about it with grownups. And again, we're focusing on white parents today because I think a lot of us white parents want to feel like we're allies, And in order to get closer, we need a better understanding of the complicated forces at work inside our own heads that prevent us from talking about race in the first place. So we invited Eula on the show to tell us how she tackles race in her work and as a mom, and how she's learned to embrace those complicated forces at work inside her head. Heads up, we recorded this conversation before the events of Charlottesville, so you're not going to hear us talking about that today. But we do think that what happened there underlines the importance of white people talking to kids about race, which is what this episode is all about. In her essay, White Debt, Eula grapples with how some debt, like the money she owes on her house, feels normal, guilt-free, even though it lasts for years. And she applies that idea to what white people owe black people— and how guilt can help or hurt the process of trying to repay that debt. Um, And in that article, there are a couple of terms that I hear a lot. I think a lot of us hear a lot. Um, But I want to hear you define what they mean to you. So can you tell us what you mean by the terms white privilege and white guilt?
1: Mm -hmm. What helped me think about what's going on with the term privilege was seeing the the etymology of the word and it's its source is from the the latin meaning private laws and um and the idea behind the word is uh is a society where laws apply to some people and not to others and that's That's the kind of injustice that I mean when I use the term privilege. Um, I don't mean that you have some things that other people would like to have. I mean that the the laws of your land actually function differently for you in a way that promotes injustice for other people.
0: And how about white guilt?
1: So white guilt,
0: I— in that
1: article that you reference, I was trying to redeem guilt. Um, And because my sense is that there's so much shame and embarrassment, especially around the whole concept of white guilt, that I'm afraid that people, people just bury that sensation, just bury that feeling rather than um, then following it to its source and, and trying to figure out, okay, if I feel this guilt, what's the source of this guilt? Um, so there was a little history of of the word, of the term that helped me think there. And it was it was learning um, from my neighbor that the word for guilt and the word for debt are the same word in German. Um, that in, in German, it's the same word is used for those two concepts, those two ideas. And that was really illuminating to me. Um, and it, it made me think, okay, well, maybe the way in to this concept of guilt, a way in that won't be threatening or scary or embarrassing to people is to think about it in terms of debt, which is in reality still a difficult concept for people. There's still shame around being in debt. There's still embarrassment. There's still denial. But we do acknowledge around debt that it it can be paid off eventually. Um, and that to me was also useful. I, I it made me think. Okay, is there is there a way that guilt can be paid off? Is there work that can be done, um, that can redeem this sense of having something you didn't earn?
0: I mean, I think it's very um, natural for for a lot of white people. I mean, I can just speaking for myself. Some of the stories of the history. Of slavery and racism in our country makes me think, well, I'm a white person and that makes me feel guilty.
1: Yeah. And I think that we've there's a lot of kind of mockery and caricature around the guilty white person. Um, that's something that we, you know, culturally we've decided that there's there's something sad and silly about the guilty white person. And I, I was trying to suggest that there's a different way of, of owning that feeling and that it, it doesn't have to be sad or silly. It, it doesn't have to be a kind of self-hatred or, or self-mockery, that it can actually be a kind of essentially adult position towards the world, uh, a recognition
0: of, of what you owe. Eula hasn't always felt this way about whiteness and guilt— Her thinking's been evolving for years. When she was nine years old, Eula's parents split up. They're both white. Then, soon after the split, her mom started dating a black guy who lived with them. This meant that Eula saw up close from a pretty young age how people with different skin colors are treated differently.
1: I had a lot of opportunities to think on some hard questions of the politics behind that difference. For instance, my mother and her boyfriend went to see Jungle Fever when it first came out, and the windows of their car got kicked in. And that was a moment where I remember being kind of brought to consciousness. Wow. And where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York outside of Albany.
0: And so what were you thinking after that incident where um, the car got damaged?
1: I was really young and new to this uh, this thinking, but my mom told me the story and she said, you know, it's because I'm white and he's black that they did that. And I said, no, that can't be it. You know, it's. I, I remember being quite incredulous. Um, and I still now talk to people um, in my community, in my neighborhood who, when they're faced with um with racism, racist action, with prejudice, are are incredulous, don't believe that it could possibly be true. I think that comes from a desire for it not to be true.
0: Later in her book of essays, Notes from No Man's Land, Eula writes about being in her 20s, living in New York with her mixed-race cousin. One day, a census worker comes to their apartment to survey them.
1: And my cousin's Attitude around the census taker is much different than mine. She doesn't want to let him in to begin with. She doesn't believe that he's the census taker. She's suspicious and worried. Um, and then, as he's asking questions, she talks back to some of his questions in a way that surprised me. Uh, you know, particularly some of his questions about race. And there were things she didn't want to answer, and there were things that. Um, there were questions that she where she refused to give him the information he was asking for and i was i was really baffled by this interaction and i said to her you know <clears throat> this isn't for him you know this is this is for the government it's this is for for the records why why are you um why are you making this so difficult for him? And she said, no, it's exactly because it's for the government. She said, think about it. Think about the history of black people's interaction with the government. I think I've earned the right to be suspicious here. Um, and so that that was an interaction where I, I realized that, you know, something as kind of banal as an interaction with a census taker could be very, very charged, um, depending on your historical point of view.
0: Eula says it's important to keep letting her experiences influence and reshape her ideas about race. And they do. Notes from No Man's Land was published in 2009. In it, Eula referred to her family as mixed, even though both her parents are white.
1: I'll just say with a little caveat that that book is is 10 years old and I no longer use that descriptor.
0: Oh, well, how do you describe your family now?
1: You know, I, after the experience of um, of having this book come out and talking about it with a lot of different audiences, I found that a lot of attention and a lot of pressure was being put on any element of my family that people felt like was unusual, racially unusual, or that made me um, I, I think, in in people's view, complicated my whiteness or something like that. And I started to get uncomfortable with that. I, I felt like the the implication was that you can't think or write about race unless you're not writing from a white position. So the people were very, very interested in, in how was my family not white. And it's true that a lot of my family members aren't white. So, um my mother's sister married a black man from Jamaica. I have cousins who are mixed. Um, my mother, for a long time, was partnered with a black man. I had a black stepsister and uh, a black step niece, I guess. Um, but I- I've become a little uncomfortable with the focus um, that goes towards that information. Um, I think what's behind it is the idea that. Um, That white people from white families can't think about race because behind that assumption, it's the assumption that if you're white, you don't have a race.
0: Eula says over the years, she's noticed people bringing attention to her non-white family members in ways that make them seem like her credentials for talking about race. But from her perspective, white people don't need credentials to talk about race. Eula says that at times she's felt weighed down by guilt as a white person. She's felt despair. But she's also felt a deep sense of responsibility. I'd like to have you read a quote from your article "White Debt," and it starts: "I have a memory of the writer of Sherman Alexie."
1: Yes, I have a memory of the writer Sherman Alexie cautioning me against this way of thinking. I remember him saying, "White people do crazy shit when they feel guilty." That I can't dispute. Guilty white people try to save other people who don't want or need to be saved. They make grandiose, empty gestures. They sling blame. They police the speech of other white people, and they dedicate themselves to the fruitless project of their own exoneration. But I'm not sure any of this is worse than what white people do in denial, especially when that denial depends on a constant erasure of both the past and the present.
0: So talk to me about where you've landed on white guilt. Like, in what ways is it helpful versus not helpful for white people to feel Mm -hmm. guilty?
1: Yeah, Um, I I completely understand Sherman Alexie's point on this, Um, and it makes sense to me, and I do think it's true, that for some people, feelings of guilt make them so confused um, and kind of distraught uh, that. As he said, they they do crazy shit, um, and they're kind of flailing around trying to just get
0: out of the like feeling. What what would you characterize as crazy shit?
1: <laughs> well, so I had this list. It took me a while, actually. I thought, hmm, I wonder what that crazy shit would look like, and I made this list. So you know, one of one of those things is um, this this trying to find someone to save. You know, when really the I think the real impulse should be recognizing the ways in which the system is damaging to to you, to your own humanity, to your own ability to exist in community and to be in effective relationships with people. And there's another highly explicit quote that is hard for me to use in print, but from Fred Moten, where he says something along the lines of, um, I don't want your help but I, I just want you to recognize that this shit is killing you, too, however more softly, you stupid motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a great quote. I love it so much. Um, and you can feel his kind of frustration in the quote. But it it gets to the core of this—yeah, the the reason to work against this system of racial oppression is to kind of save your own soul. You know, it's it, it's— It's not about saving someone else.
0: The other items in Eula's list are things she says she sees white people do all the time.
1: Making grandiose, empty gestures like, you know, a a giant gift of money, um, one-time gift of money to one place. They sling blame, so that happens a lot. I think that uh, uh, that's—people sometimes go into a a self-righteous frenzy around uh, racism— um, and put a lot of energy into trying to find the one bad person or the—, the Like the, whose the, fault is it? Yes, whose fault is this? They police the speech of other white people, so that, that's a major activity is is watching what other people say um, and trying to, again, f- uh, find— uh, it's like a, a way of relocating the, the I've guilt. I've experienced that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I'm sure you have, actually. <laughs> I, so something that i I think we see I'm gonna get myself in trouble here but I feel like we see <laughs> people um like in in like today's lingo trying to be the wokest you know like to prove that they're the wokest and and it's hard mm-hmm. kind of not to get caught up caught up in that
1: it's really hard not to yeah and and I think it's it's unproductive to learning, in my opinion. I see it among my students, too. And um, and, and I don't think that I'm free of that impulse myself, um, but it's easier for me to see when I'm watching it in other people. And I can see my students actually becoming less able to open their mind to new ideas because they're, they're trying to figure out what the party line is and follow it um, so that they don't get caught saying or thinking the wrong thing. Um, and, and I do think that that's essentially unproductive.
0: Eula goes on in her essay to say this, Isn't guilt an essential cog in the machinery of conscience? When I search back through my correspondence with Sherman Alexie, I find him insisting that we can't afford to disempower white people because we need them to empower the rest of us. White people, he proposes, have the political power to make change exactly because they are white. When we come back, how Eula is trying to teach these lessons to her eight-year-old son. Stay with us. Can you say advertisements? Yeah, no. We are back with writer Eula Biss. Eula, how do you talk to your eight-year-old son about the brutal history of racism in this country, um, as well as the fact that um, brutality still exists?
1: Yeah. I talk to him in a variety of ways, and, and we talk about it pretty often. I We started talking about it when he was two or three Um And part of the reason I started talking about it with him so early was that uh, a friend and acquaintance gave me a chapter from the book Nurture Shock, and there's a chapter on race in that book.
0: This book is really great. I've read it, and I love it. It's an evidence-based parenting guide, basically. Um, And the chapter Eula read talks about a study with white parents who used the colorblind approach Remember, we talked about this approach last time. Um, it's where parents choose not to talk to their kids about different races because they want to avoid introducing negative stereotypes about people of color. But this study found that colorblindness totally backfires. In the absence of messages about race from their parents, the kids actually assumed that their parents had negative feelings about people of color.
1: So this this made a huge um, impression on me, and it was part of the impetus for me to to begin talking with my son about race really early. What I discovered in talking to him early was that he knew much more than I thought he knew. He knew really, really early. Um, He understood the categories. And one of his first questions to me about race was, he was probably between two and three when he asked me this. He asked me about a friend of ours um, and he said, why, why is her skin brown? But what was so interesting about his question and what made me realize that he knew more than I thought he knew was that she is someone—her skin is brown, but she would—in our system of classification, she would be classified as white. Um, her, her heritage is European, and I think that she might have some Romanian heritage in there. There's, Her skin is darker than— um, than some people that we knew at the time who would fall into the the category black. So his very first question about race was asking me about what seemed to him to be an inconsistency in the category. He understood Mm -hmm. that she was categorized as white, but he didn't understand why is there a person in the white category.
0: How did you answer the question?
1: Uh, I really stumbled through that one because I thought I knew what was coming. I, I'd been prepared for the, why is so-and-so's skin brown? But I thought he was going to ask that question about someone who would be categorized as black. And I I, I was ready for that. And because I got surprised, I, I really stumbled around. Um, and I remember in that discussion, I was using lots of words that he didn't, know yet and that I had no way of explaining to him like colonialism I was like oh no I can't use that (laughs) word Um, (laughs) it made me really really strongly desire this thing that I still wish exists which is like a dictionary for talking to two-year-olds you know that will where you can look up colonialism and there will be an entry there that shows you how to explain that in only words that are in a two-year-old's vocabulary
0: wow I want that book (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so we we did we talked about categories and and we talked about I talked about how they aren't real and and that's why they don't make sense all the time. Um, but it was, I could see in his face that it was confusing to him. And it is confusing. I think that conversation was more edifying for me, honestly, than it was for him, in that it really underscored for me all the the absurdity in our, our system of racial classification.
0: And how about as he's gotten older? He's eight now. How do you talk about the more complicated things as he understands more?
1: Yeah, so— a a pretty common refrain for us is is talking about laws and rules that disadvantage some people over others. And this conversation started when he started kindergarten and, and this whole system of rules came down for him and and we did have—we were talking about kind of the purpose of rules, but I, I also wanted him to know from the very beginning that rules have a dark side and that laws have a dark side and, hmm. and the way they've been used to to oppress people. And that's true for his specific school, the, the district. They track uh, disciplinary action, and in the school where my son is, African-American students are twice as likely to have been subject to discipline than white students, so— I, I know that this is also a fact of life for him and for students around him in his school. I know that he's seeing uh, black students get disciplined more often than white students. And and so I want him to know that these systems aren't exposing some innate badness that's there, that it's the system itself that is flawed and that is bad. And so that's I have some version of that discussion with him. Very often. Um, I I turn it over in a lot of different directions to try to get at the nuances because the nuances aren't that all rules are bad and you should never follow them. But the nuances are that I, I don't want him to get it into his head as young as he is that there's something criminal about people who aren't white.
0: Are you waiting for him to ask questions or will you see something happen at school and you bring it up and mm-hmm. contextualize it for him?
1: He'll occasionally ask questions, but i it's much more common that I bring it up. Um, and that he also will hear—my husband and I will talk about race fairly often. He'll hear us and he'll ask what we're talking about. I also have become part of this group, which I think might be national, but at his school is called Courageous Conversations. And it's a group of parents who organize um, conversations and and trainings for parents, for adults um, in thinking and talking around race. So he he knows that I'm in that group and he knows what we do. And um, he will ask questions about what we're planning and why we're planning it. And... Um so things come up that way in the course of our lived lives, though when he was much younger, he asked more questions about race. I noticed that. I, I think that by eight, I think there's already things that he's just accepting. And, and that's the part that scares me. that's that's why I bring it up and I, I talk about it frequently. Um, we also read a series of books that I really loved um, by, Christopher Curtis. He he wrote a book called The Watsons Go to Birmingham nineteen sixty three, and he's written a bunch of other historical novels for kids. Um, and they're all his characters are African American, and <clears throat> he works with various different historical settings. And those books were really useful to me for for opening conversations about race in various different time periods, Civil Rights era. Also, the Depression era.
0: How did that go? Like talking to him about the civil <laughs> rights movement. How did he uh, react?
1: You know, in in almost all the conversations we've had about civil rights movement, unfair rules, slavery, it's made him sad. There's been a few of those conversations where he's cried. I consider that a totally appropriate response to. Learning about that history, it makes me actually think of a moment when I was in college. I had a professor who uh, was a a labor historian, and I was taking a labor history class. and She came to class, and she was lecturing on the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. and She broke into tears while she was describing what happened in that fire and the the women falling, burning out of the windows of that building. And I had this astonished moment where I, I saw—she'd she she'd been teaching this material for many years. She was close to retirement. And I saw how moved she was um, by what had happened to these women. And I felt like, what's wrong with me? I, I, I read all this last night. I did the homework, and I wasn't weeping when I read about what happened here. Um, but this is actually the appropriate emotional response. And so— that's kind of how I feel when my son gets very upset um, when we're talking about civil rights movement or slavery or police violence. It's I think it's appropriate to be upset.
0: I think that's that's actually uh, really useful for me to hear. When my daughter learned about Martin Luther King um, in preschool, they, they told the whole story and, and what happened to him in the end. She came home and was just a— fucking mess. She was like, well, he had the best ideas in the world and they shot him for it.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. No, I think rage, a total total temper tantrum seems to be the absolute appropriate response to learning
0: that. And like and and like and then what? Then what do you then what do you do with that?
1: I I do think that that's tricky to figure out where, yeah, where do you turn it? Do you turn it towards a, a desire to make change? Um, I, You know, when my son feels sad, I do tell him, you don't need to feel sad about who you are, but you should feel sad about the way things are. It is sad, and it doesn't have to be this way. And I, I do think that that sadness can eventually morph into resolve, especially if a child is given some more equipment. And I, you know, I'm saying this, I'm like talking just totally off the cuff because I don't know how you give the child the equipment, right, to mm-hmm. feel like they have the means to make change. But in general, I think I think that we tend as both parents and and we tend this way culturally too, to be scared of Negative emotions in children, and to feel like it's a sign that something is wrong with them or with us. And I think it's just a sign that they're humans like we are.
0: (laughs) Like many of us, Eula struggles with when and how to talk to her son about some of the hardest parts of racial oppression in our country, like police brutality, which I think is a valuable lesson. Even having a lot of information and years of practice talking about race. Doesn't make the tough questions easier. Maybe it even makes them harder. Eula wrote that she wants her son to be able to recognize his own privilege as a product of an unfair system and consider ways to sacrifice that privilege. Eula's also been thinking about ways that she can do that as his parent. In a minute, one little promise she's made to herself don't go away.
1: <laughs> Advertisements. <laughs>
0: We are back with writer Eula Biss. Last year, Eula came across an article in Bloomberg News about the high school in her neighborhood, Evanston Township High School. The article summarized studies that have shown white students and black students at this high school were not receiving the same level of education. One reason for that was something one of the researchers called opportunity hoarding, which Eula describes as the things white parents do to make sure that their children get more than other children.
1: That term really jumped out at me because I think that that's a very different concept than what most people think of as overt racism, right? So it's different to, to grab the resources and hold them. And I think quite a few of the parents in my community and in my circle actually see some version of opportunity hoarding. As their
0: duty, as what they're supposed to do for their child. Um, Because, like, why wouldn't you get them the best opportunities?
1: Right, exactly. Get them as many opportunities and as good opportunities as you can and make sure that if the opportunities are limited, you're the first one in line and, and your kid will get it. So that term did make me take a look at my own life and think about, you know, where where am I hoarding opportunities and, and how am I able to hoard opportunities? And w- one of the first things I thought about was the after-school activities at, at my son's school, and some of which are really great activities. He's in a terrific cooking class, for example, and I'm able to put him in that class in part because my, my work as a professor is very flexible and I, I can handle the fact that that class gets out at 4:45 which is not a great time for working most working parents so i think that that's that's a way in which there's a kind of collusion between me the, the parent with a flexible schedule and the school in terms of how how these activities are being timed it, it when i i took a close look at that i thought well you know Somebody should be making noise about the fact that these activities get out before most working parents could show up. And that that's probably there's a whole bunch of kids who can't do these activities for that reason. Um, And that's that's what's part of what's allowing my son a slot in that class.
0: It's always easier to find examples of this sort of greed in others. But Eula tries to be aware of when she's being greedy, too. Do you do you wind up being one of the people who makes noise about that kind of thing?
1: So so I've started to this is you know this is coming from this group of parents that I'm in we we're, we've started to try to pinpoint places where we might be able to to move um there's a lot of stuff we can't do with curriculum uh, curriculum can't be touched in a lot of ways um but that is something that's a PTA activity and, and that is something that we could um move we could shift But the other thing that I've thought about and that I have acted on is my interaction with my son's teachers and with the school in general and with the principal. And I made a little rule for myself a couple years ago that I wouldn't make noise to the teacher or to the principal unless I was making noise about something that— affected not just my son, but other people too. So that that was kind of my own rule of thumb, and I'm sure I've broken that rule. Um, But I do try to think when I approach the principal or the teacher, is this going to have some broader benefit for children other than my child? Because I also think that there's a form of opportunity hoarding that happens just with the teacher's time and attention being taken up by the parents who are the loudest and the noisiest. And these may be parents who are able for lots of different resource reasons to be up in the teacher's face a lot more. And if I were a teacher, I probably would put a little more attention towards the students whose parents were giving me that kind of headache. And I think that that's another place where where opportunity hoarding happens under the guise of what we imagine as good parenting.
0: So I heard you recently on the public radio show On Being, um, and you talked in that interview about wanting to make people angry with your writing, that that you feel like you're (laughs) not doing your job if you haven't pissed people off. And you you (laughs) mentioned that you have a temper personally. And hearing you say these things, Made me realize what a fear I have of pissing people off, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to talking about race. So, uh, so it is very hard for me to talk about. Um, help me understand why I should embrace pissing people off.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, I do want to clarify. I don't want to make people angry. <laughs> I just uh, I expect that people will be angry. If they're being challenged in the right way, I, I think that that's one of the things I've learned as a teacher is that people people get have strong emotions when they're being challenged. So it isn't always anger; it can be frustration, it can be sadness. But there's a lot of emotions that we consider negative that people feel when they're learning. I, I think when when they're meeting a challenge. Um, so I I do feel like I I do want to write writing that is challenging and that can be transformative, maybe at its best. And I expect that if it's doing that, it will give people feelings. So <laughs> why should you make people angry? You know, f- for the most part, one of the surprises for me in in talking as much about race and as openly as I have for years um, is how the hardest part has been actually just breaking the taboo and bringing it up when no one else has brought it up, introducing the subject. But in terms of how other people react, I feel like it has almost never brought on an interaction that I didn't want to be in. I guess part of the lesson for me there is that I think we're told that we shouldn't talk about race because we're going to make other people uncomfortable. And for someone who's not confrontational, I think there's a fear of initiating a confrontation. Or saying the wrong thing. Yeah, saying the wrong thing. You know, that so for me, that's the most painful part. You know, I've been doing what I'm doing now with you for years, and it continues to be really agonizingly uncomfortable to me. And I continue to have the sense that I'm saying the wrong thing and that I will be judged. And, But I, I'm here to tell you that I, I've now been <laughs> speaking messily and frankly and— <laughs> in totally, in ways that I totally later regret about race for (laughs) (laughs) many, many years. And nothing terrible has happened to me yet. And I do, you know, the other thing that's been liberating for me is this comes from my husband, who's really adamant about the fact, especially around race and racism, he feels that what you do is more important than what you say. And that has been it's been really important for me to be around that mindset because I do think that there's a kind of smokescreen that's thrown up around all this attention that we give to, to saying the right thing. And that that really we need to be putting some of that energy towards action and towards doing something and, and worrying a little bit less about people's exact phrasing or choice of words.
0: Of course, as a writer, Eula thinks words have power, too. One of her actions is writing and talking about race. And so one of my takeaways from this is I need to take a deep breath and talk about race more and just know that some things are going to come out wrong, even with practice. And I guess that's got to be OK. But people, please don't let me stand out here on my own. Join us on our website, LongestShortestTime.com. Go to this episode, number 135, and use the comments as a place to talk about the things that you can do in your communities to be more of an ally. One action that you can take right now is a little self-education. Find a link to read Eula Biss's essay, White Debt, on our website. We've got other resources there too, including the books and organizations that Eula mentioned today. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John DeLore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rekha Murthy. Special thanks to Northwestern University and Kayla Stoner. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time... We're doing it. We're really guilty. But oh, this is so fun. Just watching one more episode of Tom Selleck's Magnum PI was such a secret. I sat at family events and thought, if anyone knew what me and my husband were up to. We'll have the story of a woman who left a strict religious community with her son. Don't miss this show, you guys. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Send us anything surprising about your family. We love to be surprised. And don't forget to send in your weird parenting wins about fears, real or imagined. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric popping in here to ask, how cool is Ava DuVernay? Pretty damn cool, right? Well, over at my podcast, you can hear my co-host Brian Goldsmith and me in conversation with the filmmaker herself. I was a publicist for someone.
0: How crazy is that? (laughs) Wait, how did that happen? And then you became the director.
1: I know. Ava was nice enough to take a break from editing her next movie, A Wrinkle in Time, to sit down and talk with us. We covered lots of ground from hashtag OscarsSoWhite to the official Barbie. Yes, she has a Barbie doll, ladies and gentlemen, made in her likeness. That feels like I thought an Emmy would feel. That Barbie. I mean, what a thing! How, how can it be? I used to love Barbies. I would—that was my first storytelling. Just playing with Barbies and making up those stories. And when I but saw, but at the one, time, you probably didn't have many Barbies who looked like you. I did not. I did not. To hear the episode, just search Katie Couric on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>